this is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used for preaching at the First Free Methodist Church of Seattle, or for anyone looking to dive deeper into the Bible. Today's passage is Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. It's the basis for the sermon here at First Free Methodist Church on February 19, 2023. It's a final message in a series called Value the Difference, in which we're exploring some of the values we hold to in peculiar ways as Christian people and help us uh, be much more peculiar and recognizable in the world in which we live each day. This particular story is the story of the transfiguration of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17. It's a pivotal moment in the story of Jesus where his, some of his disciples see him uh, transfigured or, in some sense, transformed into an altered state, and they perceive him in all of his glory and power. When we talk about the transfiguration, we would look first to verses 1 through 3 of Matthew chapter 17, where it says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and his brother John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. The six days at the beginning of this passage of Scripture in verse 1 is significant. It's the amount of time that passed before Moses ascended Mount Sinai. So this notion of ascending a holy mountain after six days uh, is a significant sequence of time. It's almost trying to, in some ways, draw some parallels to God's appearances, both to Moses and to Elijah at Sinai or Mount Horeb, and this particular episode that takes place on a completely different mountain. Now, for the first time in the Gospels, we find that at least in the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus takes with him not all of his disciples, but only three of them, Peter, James, and John. There's only one other time in Matthew's Gospel when he'll select these three to be with him, and we'll talk about that more later. They went up on top of a high mountain, most likely in northern Galilee, that is somewhere north of the Sea of Galilee, where uh, Jesus probably had this episode occur. Very different from the location far in the south where these mountaintop experiences happened to Moses and Elijah. They went up onto this high mountain and it says that that Jesus was transfigured. That's a word we don't use very often in English. Uh, it's a Greek uh, word, metamorphothē. We get our word metamorphosis from the, the very same Greek word. And what it means simply is to be altered in appearance. And so he's the same person, but altered in that which he looks like. The text tells us his face shone like the sun. Again, and it's it's an allusion to Moses. When Moses descended from Sinai, his face was so bright and radiant that people had to avert their eyes from him. The text goes on to tell us that his garments became white as opposed to their normal beige and brown appearance. The appearance itself is designed to draw parallels with that of Moses and Elijah, both of whom appear in this vision, but both of whom had these similar types of experience. With Moses, of course, it's when he received the law of God on Sinai that happened on a mountain. And there's also a piece that we need to hold on to here of remembering about Moses' own death. Now, of course, Moses' death is recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, how he died, 
uh, and it was buried at um, a mountain across from the promised land where the promised land was in view, but not taken. Mount Nebo is the name of the place. It's in modern day Jordan. But according to rabbinic teaching in Jesus's day, rabbinic teaching taught that Moses was assumed into heaven, uh, much in the same way that uh, other characters in the Bible were like Enoch or the other character in this very episode, Elijah. Elijah, different from Moses, represents the prophets and in many ways represents the voice of those prophets. And Elijah also had a mountaintop experience with God and where God appeared to him. So both Moses's um, encounter at the mountain where God came to him and Moses hid his face in the cleft of a rock, very similar to Elijah. There was a divine appearance to Elijah. And Elijah too was assumed into heaven rather than having died. You might remember the great chariot that descended out of heaven and caught up Elijah and took him to heaven. That both Moses and Elijah have some parallels with this story that's happening in Matthew 17. And in Luke's version, they're talking about Jesus' upcoming death. Now, Matthew's version of this story doesn't have this. It doesn't tell you exactly what Moses and Elijah were talking about with Jesus. It just simply says that they were talking with him. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus' glory following his own resurrection. In many ways, the transfiguration is a vision of what is to come. And the, the previous passage, just right before it in Matthew 16, had Jesus teaching at length about his coming death and resurrection. Transfiguration really is a, is a capturing of the glory of Jesus after that resurrection. And that opens a key passageway for us. That Jesus holds a mysterious tension of the human and the divine. Often people have difficulty navigating this space. They want Jesus to be more human or they want Jesus to be more divine. Um, In theological terms, it's described as a high Christology or a low Christology. And what we see here and also in other places in the book of Acts and in the writings of Paul is that this either or scenario of a high or low Christology or the more human or the more divine Jesus somehow misses the very mystery of Jesus's presence and power. In every way, the human and the divine in Jesus are both. And it's a tension that's not meant to be resolved. It's a a mystery to us how this actually happens and how this can be. So we want it one way or another uh, when it comes to Jesus sometimes. We'd like him to be more human to us, more accessible, more compassionate, more relatable versus more divine, the more powerful, the more uh, manifesting Jesus who shows forth the grace and the power of God in the world. And oftentimes what that reveals is something more about ourselves than it does Jesus himself. So do we believe that we as humans are containers of divine power and the Holy Spirit? This is what scripture teaches us, that we are, that we are earthen vessels and that the gift and the glory of God are placed within us. So sometimes the questions we put at this text about whether Jesus is really human or really divine really flow out of our own sense of need to understand ourselves as, as human containers of divine power in the Holy Spirit. This text continues in chapter 17, verses 4 and then to 6. The text reads like this, Peter responded and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. 
if you want, we'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Matthew, in his version of the story, is a little bit more forgiving of Peter than Luke. Luke's gospel, in the version of this story he has, paints um, Peter's actions as a bit more foolish. For Matthew's sake, the response of Peter is simply one of naivete. He doesn't really know what he's saying. And so rather than keep silent in the moment he's in, Peter, of course, decides to say something. And what he says is that it's good we are here. Um, and therein lies the, the bit of sense of humor in this story. It is good that we are here, that he, Peter, and along with James and John are there, that somehow he expresses that their presence, the three of them, helps Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And so what Peter suggests here is that they build three tabernacles for them, or three booths. These are not permanent structures, but probably some kind of leafy hut that uh, Peter has envisioned that wasn't necessarily very uncommon in the ancient world. These little huts were built often to provide shade, especially in the intense sunlight. There is a clear sense in Peter's suggestion that the three that have now appeared, Jesus being transfigured along with Moses and Elijah, are of equal rank, and that Jesus in this case is ranked among his peers. Now his suggestion understood this way leans toward an old, an elemental mistake that Jesus, along with Moses and Elijah, are not equals. Furthermore, Peter is suggesting that the moment needs to be captured or preserved. He said, it's good we're here. We're, we'll build some huts to hold on to this moment. Jesus wants, uh, Peter wants to capture this moment. He wants to preserve it. He wants the glory of the supreme moment to be held, not the prediction that Jesus gave before they arrived on the mountain, in which he said he would be crucified after being betrayed and murdered. And so it's in the middle of Peter talking about this and the reality of what he wants to do in building these huts that this voice comes from the cloud. Again, it's very similar to the stories of Elijah and Moses on the mountain where a cloud comes and overshadows the place. Very much the same here, that God speaks from the cloud. The cloud was regarded almost like a heavenly vehicle or a car. It's the the way in which uh, in the ancient world they they thought that uh, that God's presence would move about. It was some kind of chariot, if you will. The words are the same as Jesus's baptism here. So when the voice from the cloud says, "This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased," this identically mirrors the language used at Jesus's baptism, also in Matthew's gospel. But now there's something added. Listen to him. So what we can take away from this is first is that that the voice of Jesus is different than the others, that there's something to be listened to or paid attention to here that's different from Moses or Elijah, and also listen to him about his words concerning death. In other words, the words of Jesus before they arrived on the mountain. So now once the voice speaks, the cloud appears, now the terror of the moment begins to set in. And Peter, James, and John all fall to the ground terrified. Now, unlike before, where Peter said, it's good that we're here, 
now Peter is in the correct posture to the ground, terrified, if you will. And the key passageway here for us is this, is that our desire to form Jesus to our needs often overtakes us. You know, Peter's response is so very much like our own. We want a a static, unmoving Jesus who confirms us. What Peter cannot hear is ultimately in the denial of Jesus, that he cannot believe that Jesus would actually go to the cross, that his death is inevitable. He cannot fathom that Jesus is a dynamic presence. In other words, he moves and that this Jesus is on the move. So these moments in time cannot be frozen. We cannot capture it in some way. Jesus simply doesn't comply. We follow Jesus as he leads. What we don't do is demand of God to stay present exactly as God is in this very moment for our own sake and convenience. So our posture has to be like that of Peter at the end of that particular passage of Scripture in verse 6. Complete and total submission. It's only then in complete total submission that he's actually in union with Jesus himself. And once there, once in that moment of complete and total submission, we meet a Jesus who comes to us from the transcendent to the imminent, the Jesus that comes to us from glory and then touches us individually. Verses 7 to 9 open up this touch of Jesus that after the disciples fall to the ground and are terrified, it tells us beginning at verse 9 or at verse 7 this, and Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And raising their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. When they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man has risen from the dead. Now, after this episode of God speaking and the, the climax of the parent, the appearance of Jesus as a transfigured person, as quickly as it happened, it's now over. When Jesus comes to them and places his hand upon them and tells them to get up and not be afraid, the moment is already over. And so Jesus' response to the terror of the three is to come close to them. Look at the steps that happen here. Jesus came to them, Jesus touched them, and Jesus spoke to them. There's a real pastoral sense in which Jesus engages with them, even in the midst of their own terror. As quickly as the moment began, it's over. When they looked up, it says that Jesus was alone. Now, the moment had been a sign of encouragement to the disciples after hearing of Jesus's coming death. So after Jesus predicts his death, he then takes them up onto this mountain of transfiguration where they see him in all of his glory. And now is all it was. It's over as quickly as it started. Jesus will not appear this way again until after his resurrection. And the work that is to come is Jesus's work. It's not Moses's work. It's not Elijah's work. That's why they don't continue with him. It's just Jesus's work. Jesus tells them not to speak of the incident to anyone after his resurrection. And so in some sense, what Jesus is saying is that the incident, the transfiguration, makes no sense outside of resurrection except to prevent the very resurrection that will make it happen. 
Jesus's exhortation for them to not tell anyone simply has to do with the fact that in order for there to be resurrection, for there to be this kind of vision of Jesus's glory, it will require his death, and it won't make any sense until that death has occurred. Peter, as we will learn, cannot reckon with the fact that death is the pathway to resurrection. It's the necessary component of resurrection. So the next time these three, Peter, James, and John, will be alone with Jesus, after they've been alone with him at the transfiguration, is when they're alone with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the very night Jesus is arrested and taken away to be crucified. You see, they want to freeze the great moment of the transfiguration, but will they feel the same about freezing the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus was deep in grief and angst as he anticipated his soon and coming death? That opens the final key passageway for us here, that following Jesus means being grounded. The transfiguration is followed by Jesus leaving the mountain. And in Matthew's gospel, it says he finds a world filled with sickness and pain. There's a, a, a demon-possessed boy when he comes down the mountain. He willingly enters into it. He willingly enters into that situation. So being grounded is remembering the reality of why we are here. We are Jesus's presence in a world of pain and suffering. This is our grounding. So we do not practice some kind of escapism, but rather we stay grounded with Jesus in the world. Even after transfiguration, Jesus comes down from the mountain and immediately engages in ministry with broken and sick people. Can we stay grounded with Jesus in that same sort of way, knowing his glory, but yet being engaged with those who so desperately need to know his love and his grace? If you have comments and reflections, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Please visit my website at revcraig.com. Click on the upper right-hand corner on News, and then you'll see a drop-down menu that says Podcast. Click on this week's episode, leave a comment, and I'd love to be engaged with you. Also, I invite you to visit ffmc.org, ffmc.org, First Free Methodist Church, and to learn more about free Methodism and how you can connect with our community. For now, I bid you all grace. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.